0: Good morning. Uh, Welcome once again to Christ Community Presbyterian Church. For those of you who are visiting or who have not been here, we are working through a series on uh, the book of Genesis. We're going to be going through 11 chapters of Genesis. Uh, And for those of you who've been around, uh, we've been in chapter 1 for quite some time. uh, And we'll be here for just a little longer. Um, Today we are doing part 2 of our look at the image of God. If last week we we focused intentionally on the big picture of what does it mean to bear God's image. Um, today, we're going to focus in on a, on a pertinent topic uh, really related to uh, our culture today in such a way that I think it would be uh, foolish for me not to address. We're going to be looking at issues regarding gender, um, a little bit at sexuality, but more particularly issues relating to what it means to be male and made male and female in God's image. So, with that, we're going to read the text, Genesis chapter 2. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. This is the same text we looked at last week. We're just going to take another angle, if you will, uh, another point of application. Hear God's word. Then God said, Let us make man in our image. the sixth day. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I ask uh, for your grace and your spirit this morning as we look at your word. Lord, on topics like these, we tend to want to run and, and, and not talk about them because they're fraught culturally. They have lots of, they cause lots of, Angst, not, not just because of how we might feel, but because we know loved ones who struggle. And so, Lord, give me wisdom. Help me uh, to be faithful to your word, to be winsome, to be compassionate, uh, and help us to have compassionate hearts and wise minds uh, to apply the truths of your word. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned uh, this morning we're going to be looking at this very polarizing topic of our day, the issue of gender and sexuality and as I said i'll be focusing particularly on the issue of gender. It can be applied to the area of sexuality, but I just there's so much that could be said on this topic and it would I could do a whole series just on this topic uh, so we' we're, we're going to have to narrow it down a little bit but I, I I want to give you a that this like disclaimer or warning before the service there there won't be anything explicit, but I do want to give you a heads up especially as some of you have children here and maybe you haven't talked to them about any of this this this. i will be delicate but you you obviously have feel free if you need to for whatever reason pull your kids out but i'll be honest i think it's important like we need to be listening we need to be hearing god's word on this point our children need to be hearing god's word on this point and i will do it delicately but i but i just i think it's an important thing but i get it right i get it It's tempting to want to run away, like, I'm going to shelter my kid to the very end. like They just never know what's going on in the world around them. Um, I I often feel that desire, uh, but it's important. And I wouldn't be faithful as a minister uh, if I didn't address the topic. Uh, I need to preach about this. And so with that, uh, I've given my warning. Um, I also want to know that the sermon isn't going to just be about gender and sexuality, but that I also want to land or think about, consider as well, the idea of what it means to be made in God's image with purpose as male and female. What does it mean to go into the world and fulfill the the commands here in Genesis 1, to, to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, to have dominion over it? That's an aspect of our being made in God's image as male and female. Each and every one of us, each and every one of us is created with dignity and purpose. And these things are tied together, are being male and female, and are being made to fulfill God's purpose in this world. And, and so they're not, these are not divorced ideas. We need to hold them together. And I actually think that they help us in understanding why we are who we are, how God made us. We will also note throughout the sermon how the fall, Particularly, I'm going to come to this at the end as we apply the sermon. So there will be a lot at the beginning, but at the end I want to come and really consider the application of it. We'll consider how the fall has impacted how we view ourselves in terms of our gender, in terms of our sexuality. As well as how we view ourselves in our ability to fulfill God's plan for us as image bearers. We'll recognize the brokenness that we face that the image has been marred. Yet, as is always in the aim of hopefully every sermon that I ever preach, I want to point out how God redeems, how he brings redemption. And I'll say, on this topic, I think we as Christians actually have the most to offer those who are broken or struggling with questions of gender and sexuality. We have the most to give. We have the hope of the gospel embedded in God's word here. And we need to remind ourselves of that. Even as the cultural wave tells us how evil and wicked we are, we actually have something to give the world. Our brokenness is not the thing that defines us, but it is God alone who defines us and gives us our dignity and our purpose. And we're just going to look at this in two parts. First, you are designed by God, male or female, after his image, to be fruitful. And I use that word fruitful to kind of sum up all that other stuff about having dominion and filling the earth and etc. And the second thing I want to look at is There is hope in the second Adam. There is corruption of our image-bearing, but there is hope in the second Adam, in the man of God who comes to redeem. So first, you're designed by God, male or female, after his image, to be fruitful. First, I think it's very important to recognize that some of you here today, and I'm not going to assume anything of any of you, some of you here today have or do currently, or you have family members or friends who for various reasons struggle with questions of gender identity or sexuality i have had and have friends particularly and have understanding of how people go through the struggle of themselves as they look at their own desires in their heart and how it often doesn't line up with what we read in Scripture, and they wonder about themselves. And you might be there. You might have a friend who's there. And in no way do I want to pretend that these struggles don't exist. I think um, gender dysphoria is a real thing. Sometimes Christians, well-intentioned Christians, for the zeal for truth, dismiss this oft painful way in which our humanity experiences the brokenness of the world. So, I just want to be really clear. I understand some of us may be struggling. Not just how we experience this brokenness in the world in general, but even in our own bodies. And I would go so far as to say that we as humans all experience, in some sense, the brokenness of our bodies in various ways, all of us. There's not one of us who doesn't, (laughs) Uh, I I, I don't think. Maybe if you're like 18 in your prime health, maybe. But even then, there's there's always something. But the question is, if we find ourselves in that place, particularly thinking about gender uh, issues and regarding identity, or we have friends who struggle with that, how do you make sense of it? How do you wrestle through it? Where do you go for answers? How do you know what is true? My body looks one way; I feel another. People say this. Even for those of us who don't struggle, this is hard for us to understand, to, to pull out when somebody says this to us, and we're confronted with this. We ha- we have to say, well, where do I go to answer these questions for this person? How do how do I know? Where do we go? One theologian. Uh, Probe the question. He says, how do we get to the place culturally where the words, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, is a reasonable statement? that None of us are shocked. We all sit here and none of us are shocked that somebody would say that. How do we come to this place? Historically, he sort of delves down into the philosophical and the theological and the cultural and examines this, and the psychological and examines this. But from a cultural perspective, it's not only reasonable, it is in fact what expert tells us is fairly normal. In fact, to say otherwise is to say is to be cruel. It is labeled to be cruelty. To say that to feel that way is in some way abnormal, is in fact cruel. One such expert, Dr. Deanna Adkins, a psychologist or psychiatrist wrote an expert uh, opinion, a, a declaration to the U.S. District Court of North Carolina uh, for, uh, um, I don't know all the, the details of what she, why she wrote this, but you can, you can find what she wrote. It was an expert opinion. She says this, At birth, infants are generally classified as male or female based on observation of their external genitalia. This classification becomes the person's birth-assigned sex but may not be the same as the person's gender identity. She goes on to declare, a person's gender identity refers to a person's inner sense of belonging to a particular gender, such as male or female. Gender identity is a deeply felt and core component of a person's identity. And a little farther down in the declaration, she says, gender identity cannot be voluntarily altered including for individuals whose gender identity does not align with their birth-assigned sex. And still a little farther down, she says this. From a medical perspective, the appropriate determinant of sex is gender identity. Medicine and science require that where a more careful consideration of sex assignment is needed, that it be based on gender identity, rather than other sex characteristics. In the past, when mental health and medical practitioners identified a disconnect between a person's gender identity and assigned sex at birth, treatment often focused on efforts to bring the individual's gender identity into alignment with with the assigned sex. These practices were unsuccessful and incredibly harmful. That's the expert witness so to speak so there's there's one source we can go to an expert in the field of science who says gender is the a gender identity is the means by which we identify not the birth assigned sex gender confusion or gender dysphoria is exploding today among our young people many of us are wondering how is this happening? What's happening? How do we get here? How do we help? On, on top of the very real challenge that our loved ones are struggling or we face personally with regard to gender and sexuality as a whole, there's also a politic to this as well, isn't there? These issues of gender and sexuality are now very much tied to civil rights and to civil rights movement a movement born out of a desire to promote racial equality is now wedded to these gender and sexual sexuality issues. And this follows the logic that we just read from this woman. If gender cannot be changed, and gender, the feeling that we have of who we are, is so deeply embedded, then of course it's what defines us, and of course it should be tied to civil rights. Where do we go for our answers? How do we give hope to those who are struggling with their identity issues? And how do we challenge the cultural, political, tidal wave that is washing over us? I doubt there's anything that I just said or read that is news here. Maybe for some of you, but I'm I'm doubting it. I'm I'm sure we're all aware. But I believe Genesis 1 and following, and when I mean following, I mean Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation, give us that crucial bedrock Mm -hmm from which we can make sense of these matters. Mm-hmm. It is the foundation by which we can understand the world in which we live. And here, at the very beginning, God made mankind in His own image. It says, male and female, He created them. This was the design And from this point forward throughout the rest of Scripture, gendered language is, of course, used to describe mankind. Everywhere you go in Scripture, you have this distinguishing between man and woman, husband, wife, son, daughter, young woman, young man. In the Hebrew, these are all gendered words. Elder man, elder woman, aunt, uncle. All of these words that we also use in our own language are gendered, male and female. Scripture assumes it. It's woven throughout. But more than that, Genesis, you'll remember from my first sermon, is a book of beginnings. It's a book of the generations. First of the heavens and the earth. Then the story of Adam and Eve. Then the story of Adam and Eve's children, starting with Cain and Abel, two brothers who are at odds. And, and Cain and Seth. Then Noah. Then Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Then Terah. And then Abraham. Then Isaac course, their wives, Sarah and Rachel and Jacob and Rebekah, all the way up to Joseph before we have sort of the going into Egypt. It is a story of men and women coming together as one flesh and filling the earth. It's a story of male and female. In fact, the whole Bible, in a sense, is a story of generations. It is a story of God and His people and how God makes a relationship with His people, a covenant, and that covenant is for them and for their children after them. And that necessarily requires procreation, right? It it absolutely requires it. It, it is not a minor thing, but to, to fulfill that command that we'll look at in a minute, to, to subdue and fill the earth, to be fruitful, to multiply, it requires that procreation of male and female. I don't think it's of little consequence that when you come to Abraham and the covenant made with Abraham, you'll remember there was a sign given to Abraham of God's covenant with him. You remember that sign? Yeah. Circumcision. Well, It's an odd sign, right? I mean, it's an odd sign. Why? Have you ever contemplated that? Why that sign? Of all the signs that God could have done in all the world, he chose that particular sign. Why? Because it was a picture of the cutting away of the problem of generational sin that needed to be dealt with. We have an unholy people who need to be made holy generationally. They're tied back to Adam. This is a story of the generations. And it was a very good sign. Not only is it a story of generations, it's, of course, a story of mankind's rebellion as well and how the sins of the Father, right, are passed on from one generation to the next. You can hear the echoes of that in Scripture. We see it in Scripture you look at the sons of, let's just take Samuel, or the sons of David, right? Generational sins. The whole of Scripture is built around this this binary, male and female, generational nature, and of the passing on of sin, but also of that image of God, as marred as it might be. It's inescapable, inescapable. God made man, male and female, after his own image, and be fruitful to multiply and fill the earth. It was a very good design of God to make mankind in these two complementary and corresponding parts. Now, I want to stop, and I just want us to think about the purpose. So God made us generational. He made us male and female, and he tied us together. But he did it with a purpose. We've talked a little bit, we've touched on it, this idea of filling and being fruitful and multiplying and all this. Um, I want to consider how we do that uh, apart from one another. In other words, apart from male and female. Now, it's true that each, if I was on my own, I didn't have a wife, I could, in some way, function as a man. but there there is a sense in which, there's this complementary nature that when we, male and female, not just husband and wife, but male and female, when we work together, we fully express God's creativity and work in this world. We represent Him, male and female, together. Um, when I when I do uh, premarriage counseling, uh, oftentimes we you know we take different aspects, but towards the end of my premarriage counseling session. I like the couple to start thinking about their life together. Meaning, I like them to think about who they are together and what goals that they might have together. Because sometimes, you know, we can enter into marriage and we can think, oh, I'm married to this person, but I do my thing, they do their thing. And I try to emphasize the fact that actually, when you come together, there's this beautiful synergy that, at least, ideally, right? Sometimes it doesn't always happen, but ideally there's a synergy. God is knitting you together. This is why when Eve is created from Adam, she's taken out of by the rib, created, and presented to him, and he says, this now is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and then it's declared that the two shall become one. It's a picture of that union that we're to have together. Why? For the purpose of all of this filling, producing together, Now, the question is, well, what about me? I'm single. You're not lesser. You're not. In fact, in the context of Christ's body, Mm -hmm. male and female, we still come together. And I, 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 I want to make this really, really explicit. We need one another. Women, men, together in the church corresponding complementary working together serving and as we do that there is a synergy a way in which we more fully represent the image of God in this place and in the world so as we think about image bearing and producing and ruling and the more we as male and female come together and work together the more beautiful the world becomes. Husband and wife, yes. But brother and sister in Christ, the more we work together, the more we picture that creative act of God in going into the world and producing and creating. Now, I'm going to come back to this occasionally, this idea of who we are made to be is complementary corresponding but there's another important thing i want to note about male and femaleness Um, male and femaleness are not subjective they're not subjectively decided we can see this in the text here before us but they're objectively declared notice here in genesis 1 god said right this is not a question of How I feel, it's a question of what God says. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every livestock. And so what does God do? He creates man in his own image, male and female, objectively made. God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground and then took a rib from Adam's side and made Eve. It was God's doing to make these two complementary corresponding parts. I want to go back to that Theologian uh, who queried how do we got to the place where it's not at all radical for anyone to say I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. Uh, he argues that we live in an era of the psychological self. That we are not defined by our societal relationships, by family or job, but rather we are defined by, why, by what we desire or feel. It's this radical individualism. Our identity is tied to this inner self. Um, And we heard this, actually, explicitly stated by that doctor who testified to the U.S. District Court when she said, gender identity is deeply felt and the core component of a person's identity. In fact, she goes on and she argues that this feeling was immutable, whereas things like genitalia, our chromosome makeup, our physical markers of sex, those things are mutable. We can do surgery, we can put chemical into the body, we can do things to sort of transform that the outer shell, but the inner person is immutable. You cannot be changed in that inner self. That's the thing that gives us our identity and self, and partic- particularly with the issue of gender and sexuality. Not only is this radical individualism or subjectivism, but it's also pretty fatalistic some of you sitting here today who are struggling with this and said you know i see what i see in scripture but i feel this way can it be changed is there any hope of me actually having a feel i don't want i don't want that disconnect but i feel that disconnect and that feels deeper than anything else can it be changed according to the doctor no it's immutable How you feel, what you desire is so deeply embedded in you that it cannot be changed. For those of you who have been working with me through my church history class, there is one uh, 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 heresy that constantly creeps up over time throughout history, like shown throughout the time over and over in different ways, and that is Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the ancient Heresy born of Greek philosophy that at its core believed there was a sharp division between body and soul. The body was generally viewed as evil, something to be killed off, but the soul, that thing was the real person. The soul was the, 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 the identity of the person, and it plays itself out in many ways. It played itself out in radical hedonism. It played itself in radical asceticism, meaning radical pleasure or radical bodily discipline and violence. To kill off that which is physical and only attain to that which is spiritual. Make no mistake, the doctor is not making a scientific claim, but a metaphysical claim. The mind is real, the body is just a facade. Something to be transformed, changed, and conformed. Gnosticism in Redux. When God made Adam and Eve, he made them body and soul, united, one. He declared objectively what we are, male and female. Now, it's important to thing to point out. Male and female bear God's image both independently and together. But they're both mankind. And maybe this is obvious, but at some point, someone coined them saying, men are from Mars, and women are from Venus. I have no idea. I just remember that saying at some point, I'm sure it was used in counseling, and I get it, we're different. Uh, I didn't have to be married very long to realize those differences. We are different. Um, And sometimes it feels maybe like we're from different planets. Yet I think too often we assume a much greater gulf between man and woman than actually exists. In fact, I think some gender and sexual confusion might come from men and women not fitting into stereotypes of masculinity or femininity. Don't get me wrong, we are distinct, male and female. Nevertheless, Eve was taken from Adam's rib. He declares, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This, of course, pointed not just to the fact that she literally was created from him by God, uh, but that they're connected and that as husband and wife they come together in union and so the text declares, therefore, a husband, uh, 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 the, the two will become one flesh, leave and cleave. Gender dysphoria, though, I think, for honest, isn't a surprising thing at all. Maybe you feel like it is. It's like, where did the world go? The world has changed from what I knew as a kid to to now. It's a different world altogether. But I actually don't think gender dysphoria ought to be very surprising to us. I'll come back to this in a minute. But I just want to note that the fall corrupted everything, including the distinguishing of male and female, as well as the right way we ought to view our union and likeness with the opposite sex. So often we run in two different directions. We either run completely away from uh, a male, males are this, females are this, and there's a gulf between us and we can never understand each other. Uh, I would say radical feminism kind of fits into this category. There's there's Maleness is bad or femaleness is good. Radical feminism, I'm saying, right? Those things are... Those things are, there's a huge gulf between us. But then on the other side, the other side of the coin is, we're confusing them. Like what? Well, I don't feel like a male, and I don't feel like a female. Then what am I? Who am I? But notice God makes the distinction. Male, female, yet of the same flesh, same substance. We are one, and yet distinct. Maintaining that, I think, is really significant and important for understanding We're created to be in concert together, complementary to one another. Now, I want to move towards application. I try to give you kind of big, broad, sort of picture. I, we could talk at length about these from from all sorts of perspectives, um, but I want I kind of want to move towards application because I think sometimes we can start to get. Right, we have right knowledge, we're good to go. We, we've got it all, I've got what I know, need to know. I'm male, she's a female, and the world is wrong, and I've got it right. And we fail to miss the heart, I think, of the gospel. So I want to look at this idea of corruption and redemption in the hope of the second Adam. I want us to stop and consider Just a little bit. What happened in the fall? To all of us. What happened to mankind? When Adam and Eve took the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when they decided to define for themselves what was true and right and good and did not any longer want to fall under God's objective reality, but come into that subjective thing, I want to define for myself what is true, right, and good. What happens when they take that? Well, everything is broken down, right? The relationship is broken down between male and female. So we see that clearly. Secondly, what we see not only is that this breakdown of the relationship between male and female, but we see a breakdown between the relationship between God and man. God now is distant. He's a God who has wrath, who is bringing judgment and justice. And man sits exposed, naked, and ashamed. Facing the full weight and wrath and curse of God for sin. So that's one aspect of it. Then in the curse itself, you have pain in this generationalness. Women are going to face pain in childbirth. That that beautiful work that we were called to do to represent God on earth and all the creativity that goes along with subduing and filling and being fruitful is now thorns and thistles. Broken. Broken. In fact, all of creation groans. All of creation is marred. All of creation is corrupted, including our bodies, including our minds, including our emotions, including our desires and affections, including all that defines us. In fact, to such an extent that we, What we decide to define us, Romans 1 is really clear on this. As we think about what defines us, it now becomes we exchange the things of God for the things of the earth. We start to look around to the world and say, "Uh, I want to make things for myself. The desires of my heart are now for the things of the world. And so our desires are transformed that means how you feel about yourself is transformed. When we think about this area of dysphoria, I would say, what does the word dysphoria mean, by the way? We use that, we throw it around, gender dysphoria, dysphoria. Uh, dysphoria is that feeling of discomfort that we have. Uh, for the person who has gender dysphoria, it's that feeling of discomfort comfort that they have uh, with their bodies, right? as they feel one way and experience something different. Um, but let me, let me suggest to you that we all have dysphoria. There's not one of us that doesn't struggle with a sense of, of discomfort. Because what we long for, what we desire, how we view ourselves, whether or not it's related to our gender, is disordered. Mm-hmm. It's broken. And each one of us, as we confront and face our own desires of our heart, we recognize that it does not conform itself to the desires of God. You may not have this problem of gender dysphoria, but I guarantee you have another problem, another discomfort that you have with yourself. I desire to do the things that I don't want to do. I do the things that I know I ought not to do, and the things that I want to do I can't do, Paul there is talking about dysphoria. That brokenness of sin that, that exists in our hearts. In fact, I would even, I would, I would go another step farther, actually, um, that dysphoria is good. That sense of wrong, of feeling like there's something off, is what drives us to see our sin. And to recognize our need for redemption. Each generation following Adam faced this problem of brokenness. Of doing those things that were against God's word. Sometimes those people would go in absolute rebellion against God. And yet God persisted in pursuing. So even there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God says to the woman, uh, in terms of this generationalness, though it's broken down, though husband and wife no longer are are one, but they're at odds with one another. And even as we come to this modern uh, version of gender uh, spectrums and uh, defining ourselves in all sorts of ways, God says, you know, I'm still going to use the means of my image bearing in you To bring about your redemption from generation to generation. I'm going to show you my faithfulness to you despite your own rebellion and sin. Right? And so then we come after generation after generation after generation. And and we see the brokenness. Okay, so maybe it wasn't uh, gender identity issues, but Abraham, uh, he had multiple wives. He tried to take the generational nature into it. He was sexually broken. David, sexually broken. In fact, God uses David's sin, Bathsheba, to bring about his ultimate redemption. To bring about that which was, to take that which was broken and restore it. And so the seed of the woman comes. The second Adam the one who comes and experienced dysphoria. Can you imagine what it's like to be the Son of God, creator of the heavens and the earth, to take on flesh and to bear the weight and curse of God for our sin that He doesn't commit on the cross? That's dysphoria. To say, I am God, and yet I feel the weight of my own Father against me. The sin that the world has done, I take upon myself, and I am crushed, and I am broken. I don't, this isn't right. So he says in Gethsemane, Lord, let the cup pass by, but not my will, but yours be done. So on the cross, as he hangs there, he feels that dysphoria when he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Friend, if you're here and you're broken by the reality of your own sense of identity, and you realize, I don't feel like I know I should. Like I, There's a distinct feeling that I have. I don't necessarily, I know it's disordered. I know it's not right, but I can't change it. Friends, Christ came to break the power of that curse. He took it upon himself. He took it upon Himself. And Christ Himself then says, I give you my Holy Spirit. And this Spirit is for you that you might be transformed. That what you feel like, your identity that you feel so strongly inside of you is no longer your identity. Listen to what it says in in Ephesians 4. I want to read Ephesians 4. It says, Now this, I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, greedy, uh, to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have... Heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God. Did you hear that? What God does is He comes in the second Adam and He says, I am going to make all things new. I'm going to transform your heart and I'm going to bring you back to that place where you can fully fulfill that mandate to go and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Yes, it changes spiritually. Now our fruitfulness is a godlike life, right? Yes, certainly having children and bearing children is a sign of God's blessing, but there's this reality that God says, I'm going to transform you to make you new. What used to identify you no longer does. Friend, if you're here this morning struggling with this question of identity, and it may be a gender identity issue, but it could be another identity issue. I want to remind you that your sin does not define you. How you feel does not define you. God defines you. In the Lord Jesus Christ. He puts his mark on you and says, you are mine. So that Paul, the Apostle Paul in Romans, in chapter 6, will talk about identity. He'll talk about this reality that we uh, have been given the spirit of godliness in us. That you were made dead to sin and alive to Christ. So Paul says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. Friend, this is the power of God in us. How you feel does not define you. God defines you. God defines you in Christ. And that, if feelings are not... Bad in of them themselves, God transforms those too, so that those feelings start to conform to the reality of who God is making you. You now can reflect God in your joy, in your affection, in your love, in your relationships with male and female. God is at work transforming you. Hear this word of encouragement. God, as those who've been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have dominion over you, since you're not under, sin will not have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Friends, as we wrestle with these difficult topics, maybe for ourselves or for our loved ones, as we think about our own sin and we are constantly confronted with the reality is, I feel this way. I feel like I have no power to change. The gospel says otherwise. The gospel says otherwise. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Friends, this is the most hopeful message we have to offer the world. What does that mean for those of us As we go out into the world, as we are confronted with people who say, I feel like a a woman trapped in a man's body. I think it gives us great compassion. Because I feel like a sinner, stuck in my sin, but for the grace of God and the Spirit of God in me. So I understand, friend, what you're struggling with. There's hope for change. There's hope for change. The gospel of grace answers that. You are designed by God. Redeemed by God. Created for His glory. And the good news is that when we get to to glory, that it will be complete. That disjunct that Paul feels when he says those words, I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I want to do, that disjunct, that says the old man that still remains feels overwhelming at times, sin constantly defining who I am, but we know it's not true, but we still feel like it's true. That is going away with in glory. We have a hope that we will be transformed. If you're stuck, stuck, struggling, you're saying, "Eh, I, I struggle with this gender identity and I don't see an end to it. There is an end to it. If not here and now, in glory. Fight the good fight. Empowered by the Spirit. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. You are designed and redeemed by God for his glory. Let's pray.